Let's pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Presenting Charlie P. from Austin, Texas, AA speaker. Uh, There's a conference, Riverside Conference, in Whitney, Texas. Enjoy. About 10 years ago. said about me is true. I was in the parking lot this afternoon. Is it okay if I raise this up or you want to just... Hi everybody, I'm Charlie Parker. I'm a grateful recovered alcoholic. Wow, what an honor to be here. Um... Kirk, nice job on uh, how it works. I, uh, I feel you. I, that's the only. I, I've been coming to this conference for a long time, and uh, I took a few years off there for a while. But uh, when I was hanging out in New York, but I, uh, it's a real honor to get to talk somewhere that you've been coming so long. I mean, my when I, the whole time I've always been a, a big on conferences, and I always say that people don't go to conferences to get their court cards signed. You know, it's 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 a. Uh, <laughs> Nothing against court cards, but, you know, it's, uh, I've always found it to be where people are drawn to the solution and drawn to the program and, you know, to here because they want to be, and, um, to be up here is a real honor. Um, I said my name's Charlie, I'm a grateful alcoholic. My sobriety date is March 22nd of 1985. I have a home group. It's the primary purpose group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Austin, Texas. We invite you, if you're ever in Austin on a Tuesday night, to come see us. We, uh, we've been running about 150, 175 people on Tuesday night studying the big book line by line. And uh, it's, uh, it's a great group. And uh, um, I have a, my sponsor is Mark H. And, uh, and then uh, I think I've got most everything out of the way. I'll get to Katie here a little bit later. I, uh, Hopefully, um, I want to thank everybody on the board and anybody, you know, now I'm in a great position here. First of all, I'm on, it's Friday night, so I get to be the first one to go. Um, second of all, I wasn't even supposed to be telling my story. I, you know, so if, if, if it's okay, that's wonderful. And if it stinks, it's Joe's fault for having open heart surgery. You know? so, uh, uh, but, uh. I was I was slated to do steps one, two, and three, uh, and I've been really anxious uh, about that for about nine months. You know about you know how I was going to get one, two, and three all into one hour because I, I mean I can easily talk for an hour about the nature of the disease and then you know step one and then and, and then step three and and uh, and then they called about a week ago and and said, um, do you want to you know do, do the talk on Friday night? And I said. Uh, well, I'd be happy. I said, I'll do the steps. I'll do the talk. I'll do both if you want or whatever. And he goes, well, it'd be too much to ask for you to do both of them. I went, oh, no, it wouldn't. Uh, you know, uh, that would actually be quite a comfort, you know, because uh, that way I, I could just, if you run over, you could just carry it on into the talk, you know. But um, I, uh, I really am grateful to anybody that had anything to do with this conference going, you know, coming together. I, I've been around AA enough to know that 
there's a lot of work that goes into putting one of these things on. I know there's a lot of people that worked really hard getting this thing to come together. It's also, if it's like the groups that I go to, I also know there's a lot of people that didn't do a darn thing, um, but have a lot of ideas about how it could have been done just a little bit better. You know, I mean, that's, that's the fellowship I crave. You know, I, uh, I, uh, you know, they said, you know, you tell your experience, strength, and hope. And you know, in uh, in the doctor's opinion. He says, for a message to interest and hold an alcoholic, it has to have depth and weight. Meaning that I can't just tell you a bunch of theory or stuff that I've studied out of the book. We're supposed to be coming out of our experience. And it reminds me of the guy that's driving down the road and he sees a sign for a talking dog for sale. And he goes up to the door and he knocks on the door and he says, uh, you still have the talking dog? And the guy says, well, yeah, he's around back. And he walks around back and there's a dog laying there and he goes, so you, you can speak English? And the dog said, well, I certainly can. And uh, he says, how did you pick that up? He said, well, when I was a pup, I started picking up on the English language. And uh, I started developing some of the nuances later. And, and uh, um, i got to tell you, I really had a fabulous life. Fabulous life. He said, you know, I've been involved with the Drug Enforcement Administration for about 15 years. And I've been a part of ever taken place in the world. And, and uh, I've probably been around the world 15 times and uh and what's even more interesting is that some of my pups are multilingual and have gotten into uh diplomacy and and uh, you know have, and have been ambassadors post and so like it's just it's been a tremendous life and the guy he says well it's been a real cool visiting with him and he goes back around front where the guy's still up on the porch and he says how much do you want for a dog like that and the guy goes i don't know what 20 bucks he goes, why would you sell a dog like that for 20 bucks? And the guy goes, none of that crap he told you is true. <laughs> so, So up here, it doesn't matter how good the story is if, if I'm, you know, if it's not from my experience. I, I hope to, I hope to talk to you a little bit about about that, you know. But you know, the, the book says our stories disclose what it used to be like, what I used to be like, what happened, and what I'm like now. For me, and the way my story goes, I kind of have to talk about what I used to be like, what happened, and then what happened. And then what happened, and, and then what I'm like now, because I've, I've had uh, some different levels of involvement in this fellowship. Uh, but uh, um, I guess just let's just roll on into it. I, uh, um, see what um, I come from a pretty normal family. I grew up in Dallas, Texas during the baby boom. Uh, I was born in the mid-50s, and uh, there were uh, 61 children on the block that I grew up on. So it really was the baby boom. And, uh, um, I, but I mean, a friend Jim says that uh, normal is a setting on a washing machine. But I mean, but I, it was a fairly normal family. And, you know, there was no drinking in my house. And I, I was the only alcoholic in the family. I'm still the only alcoholic in the family, but in that little nuclear family. But um, my uh, mother was a first grade school teacher for 42 years. So I was. Uh, very well prepared for the first grade. I, uh, 
you know, I mean, flashcards and all that stuff. I look back at my parenting skills and I go, I didn't even stick a toe in the water compared to what my folks were doing. But, um, but I held it together pretty good through, um, gosh, you know, probably up to about the fifth grade. Anyway, you know, I mean, I was uh, rocking along pretty good. Um, but uh, I don't know about anybody else. Did anybody else grow up under the burden of potential? Oh, my God. You know, the whole time is like, well, why can't you live up to your potential? You know, why can't you be more like the, uh, like Charles Malaire across the street? And, uh, you know, just, it was up to your potential. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm flattered by the statement, but I'm really not holding back that much. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, hate to, I hate to disappoint you, but this is pretty much my best shot, you know. Um, but, um, you know, um, I was I was going along pretty good, you know, and I was involved in all the sports and high academics and all that stuff. And um, But to get to the drinking part, I, I didn't start drinking until I was 16 years old. And um, there was a time, you know, that was, it's funny because back then, that was kind of young to start drinking, um, 16, uh, ninth grade. Now... It's not even young to stop, you know. I mean, you know, you got you got people picking up desire chips at like eight, you know. You know you're like, I mean, much love for the young people in AA. I'm not I'm not knocking anybody, but you know, you just you look around. For me, it started at 16 years old, and uh, I probably didn't need this fellowship until I was 17 years old, you know. But I mean, so I had a good year of controlled drinking there, and. Um, but, you know, um, I don't have enough time to really talk a lot about my drinking, but I have to tell enough to qualify. So I like to try to weave it in, you know, to what the book says about what's wrong with us. Because I, I spent years in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous saying my name's Charlie, I'm an alcoholic, and I didn't even know what it meant. You know, I just, I just said, I, I knew everybody else said they were alcoholic, and, uh, um, and I knew I drank a lot, and... Um, um, I had a lot of trouble as a result. I hope to get later to the uh, the part about physical allergy and mental obsession, but there's a lot of pressure off of me in that because I love the way they do the speakers here at this conference, and then they have step speakers because I usually take up a good bit of my talk talking about steps one and step two and step three and the nature of the disease and that sort of thing. And I'm happy to say that right from my home group tonight, we've got... Uh, Blind Dave doing steps one, two, and three tonight. And if you've never experienced Dave doing the steps, he's, it's just tremendous. It's, in fact, I'd go so far as to say it's the, it's the best you've ever heard ever in the history of this conference. It, probably in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't think anyone has ever done the steps as well as Dave. I mean, in fact, if, he, if it's not the best you've ever heard, I'd, I'd think of it as a disappointment to our host and uh, an embarrassment to our home group. Uh, but, um, but you know, you, so uh, I guess that really gives you something to look forward to later. Um, I, uh, I love Dave. I really do. Uh, you, you're going to enjoy that a lot. But, um, you know, the way my drinking went, it would be really macho to stand up here and say that from the time I was 16 until I stopped drinking at the age of 28, that I drank a fifth of whiskey uh, every day or um, 
and that, but that wouldn't be true. But the thing is that is absolutely true for my story, and this isn't true for a lot of people held it together a little better than I did. But from the time I was 16 until the time I stopped, I can promise you with every fiber of my being that I never turned down the opportunity to get loaded one time under any circumstances for any reason. There was never one time where somebody said, hey, how about this? And I'd say, oh, no, um, I'm going to have to pass. You know, um, you know, it's my mother's birthday today, or uh, uh, I have to be somewhere in February, or, you know, I mean, you know, never one time, never, ever one time. It just never happened. There was a lot of people that that wasn't their experience, but for me, I was, I was all about, from the first time I ever got, felt the buzz of alcohol, I remember thinking, we are going to do this a lot, you know, and, and because it did something for me that I didn't even know needed to happen, but I'd been walking around with a black hole inside of me since elementary school, and uh, something that made me feel different from everybody, that made me feel apart from everybody, made me feel like I had to outperform you in order to feel equal to you, um, and uh, and I was completely self-centered and self-obsessed and living like that you need a drink as soon as you can get your hands on one you know uh, but for me it was at 16 and boy it did something you know but there were periods where it was kind of going all right you know but then it started getting sloppy and um most of you have probably experienced that you know i uh i want to welcome while i'm thinking about it how many alanons are here tonight Fantastic. When I sobered up, it was really cute to tell jokes about Al-Anons. And I, don't, I never thought that was funny. I never, it never made sense to me, and it's not funny to me now. I mean, it's the only group of people that loves us, you know? I mean, you know, and, and, and that ain't easy, you know? I mean, <laughs> I, uh... I, uh, I've got an Alanon story, but I'll try to get to it later. Okay, wait, before we go any further, i got to tell you one other thing. i got a little ADD working up here. Um, so uh, my brain goes off on little bunny trails sometimes. And, uh, when I tell you that we're going to get back to something a little later, all that means is this is an inappropriate time in the talk to introduce that, that piece. But when I say we're going to get back to that later, we're probably not coming back. You know? <laughs> there's, a, there's about a 10% chance that I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pull it back around. I'm always so excited when I do. I'm like, God dang, I actually brought it back around. But, um, but so I, I should probably go ahead and tell the Elanon story anyway. Uh, before, I, before I get any further, this is, I'm, I'm trying to make it as fast as possible. When I first sobered up, my, my, my sister was getting married, and um, my mother, my father went to Al-Anon, and my mother never did. She didn't need it. Uh, you know, and just ask her. So uh, um, my dad was going to Al-Anon, and anyway, my sister was getting married, and I could work my mother like a rented mule. I mean, I could just, uh, you know, I, I remember calling her up one day, and I said, okay, Mom, I've been thinking. You know, there it is. I said, you know, for the wedding, I was going to rent a tuxedo. And, uh, you know, in Texas, it's okay to wear boots with a tuxedo 
So I was thinking, instead of wasting the money, listen how I shake this up. Instead of wasting the money renting those rubber shoes, I thought we could buy me a pair of boots. I'm still living in a halfway house at this point. I said, I was thinking we could buy me some boots, and then I'd have them after the wedding. And my mother said, okay, you know, it's a good plan. And you know, So I went out boot shopping, and I called back to the house to report in, and I said, uh, I told my dad, my dad answered the phone this time, and I told my dad, I said, um, I've been out boot shopping, and I found some boots I like. I said, now, they got some Dan Post lizards that are $175, and they're pretty nice. I said, but the ones I really like are these Lucchese elephant boots, and uh, they're $400, and uh, this is in 1984. And, and uh, my dad says, Charlie, I want you to have the best boots that money can buy. He says, I don't care if they're 200 or 400 or even $1,000, just as long as you can afford them. I have you guys to thank for that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's so. There's some fine pictures at my sister's house of me wearing rubber shoes. I, uh, but uh, it, that, that's my, my that was my first experience with Al-Anon. I, uh, and I love you guys. I'm glad you're here. Um, you know, as we went along. Um, I said it started getting sloppy. I mean, this is a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe heavily in the spirit of singleness of purpose. And, and when I'm at an AA podium, I, I try not to talk about outside substances. But um, I had a lot of experience with uh, things other than alcohol. And, and uh, um, the, I guess the best way to shape it up was the guys that I drank with thought that I was doing way too many drugs. And the guys that I did drugs with were shocked by how much I drank. You know, so everybody thought Charlie was getting too loaded, you know. And, and it always reminds me, there's a band called Aerosmith. And I don't think this is breaking their any, but several of them were in recovery. And they said they knew they had a problem when Motley Crue told them they were getting too loaded. You know? You know, you, know you, you guys need to back it down just a little bit, you know. I, uh, that's kind of the way it was for me. That's all I'm going to say about that. But it started getting sloppy, and I crossed an invisible line somewhere where I lost the power of choice and control. Um, I don't know when it happened. Um, I think that's why they call it an invisible line. But, you know, somewhere along the line... I lost the power of choice and control in my drinking, and the book talks about that a lot. I, uh, I love this book, and, and all this is here is a large print copy of the big book that a friend of mine had uh, leather-bound for me. It's probably my most prized possession, and um, there's a lot of good stuff in here, and I hope to talk about some of that later. Um, <laughs> we'll see about that. But, but uh, yeah, but... You know, somewhere along the line, it became different. It wasn't just about partying and stuff. I'm going to have to come out of this. You know, if, my, if anybody talks to Mark Houston, would you tell him that I wore a coat and tie? I, you know, I, uh, I got to tell you, most of my experience before I got to the program in a coat and tie was my job was to stand, at, you know, stand there and with my hands at my side, and when I got nudged, I'd say, No contest, Your Honor. <laughs> Um, that's, uh, that's, about, that's, 
That's just my experience. Um, but, you know, it started getting kind of sloppy, and the things, you know, it started getting where, uh, where people weren't as excited about seeing me coming. And uh, I started, here, honey. Everybody say hi to Katie. <laughs> That's my hero right there. I, I, I'm definitely going to talk about her a little bit later. That's a, um, Oh, oh, it's a new world. Gotta get a little oxygen to the brain. We'll be all right here. Um, sloppy, and uh, I start. You know, it's. Um, I like to talk about the pawn shops when I talk about the things getting. Uh, I don't know about anybody else, but I love pawn shops. I loved pawn shops. I uh, I loved the whole equation of pawn shops because it was so pure. You know, I mean, you know. You walk in, I've never once had a pawnbroker look at me and go, good God, Charlie, what are you going to do with this money? You know, uh, or, uh, weren't you just in here this morning? You know, or, um, you know, you know, any of that stuff, it was always just walk in with the deer rifle and walk out with the money. And, um, really a great deal. Only one thing though, I didn't own a lot of stuff. Um, so, uh, I was forced to pawn stuff that didn't belong to me, and uh, that creates hard feelings in your uh, family and friends and stuff, but um, I would start pawning stuff, and just, I had so many good plans, you know, God knows drunks can put a plan together, you know, and, and like most of our plans work really well until they stop working, and, you know, and uh, the plan with this one was... You pawn the stuff, you had 90 days to pick it up. So sometime during a 90-day period, you had to pull a scam big enough to go get everything out of the pawn shop, and then you could roll for another 90 days. And, you know, and you know it was a pretty good plan. Um, except for I had lost the power of choice and control in my drinking. Um, one night I claimed hail damage on this uh, little 240Z I was driving back then. I mean... Wherever it hailed, I was there. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I'd be watching the news, and they'd say there was hail in Brownwood last night. And the next morning, I'd be on the phone going, man, I was driving through Brownwood yesterday, and you wouldn't believe what happened. But I get this check for the hail damage on this car. And I, don't, I never tell that story at detox centers. I don't want to give anybody any ideas. But, um, but I got this check to get everything out of the pawn shop. And I came out of a blackout. I'm a blackout drinker. Um, I, uh, I just, I, I thought that's the way everybody drank. But I used to blackout several times a week. And, I mean, on a regular basis, I would drink to blackout just because oblivion was always my goal, you know, there towards the end. But I, 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 this time, though, I came out of a five-day blackout. Five days, don't remember a thing. And uh, I was sitting on the edge of the bed at my parents house i got i should tell you that i was so poorly treated as a child uh, that i finally ran away from home for good at the age of 27 i uh, i'm in it never went back um but uh i was in and out of their house for until i was 27 years old and you know and this time i came out of that blackout and i had eight dollars in my pocket and this big old gangster wad of uh pawn tickets. I hadn't gotten a darn thing out of the pawn shop. 
and uh, um, I should warn you, I'm a big guy, I ride Harleys, I do all that stuff, but I am liable to cry like a little girl in a pink dress sometimes up here, so I, I, if I don't get through this one, I, I never know when it's coming. Katie always, Katie always says that I do the same thing whenever I start crying, I always go, wow, didn't see that one coming, you know, but here we go. Um, I would have to go to my father and say, Dad, if we act now, I can get you a really good deal on all of your stuff. You know? But, if, you know, I say that like it's a joke. With Al-Anon's in the room, I got to tell you, that's the only way I can get through that without crying. Um, My dad was a good man, and uh, nobody gave him his stuff. And here's his son out pawning it, you know. And uh, what we would have to do, and the reason I like to tell this story when we deal with the loss of choice and control, is because in Dallas, this was in Dallas, Texas. It's a big town. You don't just get in the car and go to the pawn shop. It was, okay, Dad, we got to go over here on East Grand and pick up your shotgun over on Buckner Boulevard. And the metal detectors are out on Beltline. And then we need to go over to Oak Cliff to pick up the Sterling Silver. And, you know, and so it was all day in the car with me and my dad and all that shame. And, um... As we're riding along, I would say, Dad, I swear to God, I will never do this again. And if I was lying to that guy, I didn't know it. Because I meant it with every fiber of my being. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the loss of the power of choice and control. I could not choose whether or not I was going to drink, and I couldn't control how much I was going to drink once I started drinking. And that's the nature of the disease of alcoholism. They will talk a lot more about the physical allergy coupled with the mental obsession, but it's those two working together that make me alcoholic, and that's the thing that baffles our family members and the people that love us, is that when I promise you that I'm never going to drink again, I might as well be promising you that I'm going to fly out across the parking lot because I don't have the power to make good on that promise. I cannot manage the decision not to drink anymore. And I've proven that time and time again in my life. But all I can tell you is that people were tired of hearing about it. I, I knew I was alcoholic for a year and a half before I got here. You know, and, and saying that I was alcoholic, people get really tired of hearing that you're alcoholic. You know, I mean, I was like, well, you know, I'm alcoholic, you know, and and, and, I, and I was fixing to go to treatment. Anybody else spend any time fixing to go to treatment? Oh, <laughs> uh, man, I mean, you know, next week is a good time to go to treatment. And, uh, um, and when it would get really bad, sometimes, by God, I'm going tomorrow, you know, I mean... <laughs> Well, probably tomorrow afternoon, but um, but tomorrow for sure. And, and, and then, you know, when today would come, it was never the day. It was never the day. Today was never the day to stop. And uh, that went on for a good while. And uh, during that time, I, you know, it started getting sloppy. I got a 100-mile-an-hour DWI, and I got up. One night, I was leaving a bar. I'd had five Long Island teas, 
and I was leaving the bar. I like I like those things. And uh, um, when I sober, I used to leave that bar and take that drink and just stick it down in my belt and pull my shirt tail out. And when I, my mother had two cases of those glasses at her house when I sobered up, I, you know, in in the laundry room there was two cases of those drinks from the Abbey Inn there in Dallas. I mean, I guess I should try to find the Abbey Inn and put that one on the list, honey. I, uh, <laughs> God Almighty, it just keeps getting longer. <laughs> you know, when you get your consciousness around, you know, the eighth step, it, they start bubbling up out of nowhere, and I, um, I'm sure I'll talk about that later. Um, you know, but you know, uh, I left this bar in a blackout, and I, I, I came out of the blackout. There'd been an impact, and uh, I, I could see the fender of the car sticking up in the air, and. Uh, it was real hazy, and uh, a really hazy night, you know, and, and uh, um, but I was still rolling, and I kept my foot on the gas, and I uh, made it down the block and around the corner, and for some reason, my shoes were on the passenger side, but I grabbed my shoes, and, uh, and I ran back to the bar to report the car stolen, and uh, just a day in the life of Charlie Parker, and, and uh, um, as I'm running back to this bar, I remember running under these trees, and uh, I'm running along with my sneakers in my hand, and I'm going back to this club, and as I passed the scene of the accident, I looked across the street, and I was pretty drunk, but I could make out that there were two police officers standing there with a flashlight, and, and you could see the twinkle of broken glass in the street, and I, and I just remember as I ran by thinking, my God, they got here fast. And I ran back to the bar and I reported the car stolen. And uh, um, then I should, Katie says it's important for me to mention to you that this was my mother's car. Um, I, uh, I wrecked every car she ever owned. And, um, um, but uh, the next morning the police called and they said, Mr. Parker, you're going to have to take a polygraph test to get your car back. And I said, well, why is that? They said, um, it was involved in an accident before it was reported stolen. And I said, you're kidding he said, no, they rammed into a parked police car. And, and I remember thinking, that explains how they got there so fast. You know, I mean, the point, you know, but it all made sense then. But uh, I guess, you know, what I'm talking about is that it just really had started getting um, sloppy. And... Uh, so I'd heard about AA, I'd heard about treatment. I really didn't hear anything about AA, I just heard about treatment. This maintenance man in my apartment kept talking about treatment, 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 treatment. You, gotta, you know, treatment, you go to treatment, you want to go to treatment. And he never mentioned detox, he never mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous, he never mentioned anything but treatment. And uh, um, so I went to treatment, finally. But I was fixing to go to treatment for about nine months. And, uh, and But when I finally went, I don't know... Was anybody else disappointed with our 12-step program? I mean, I figured we'd stop drinking about step 10 or 11, you know. And, and you get here and they're talking about just, bam, just stop drinking right off the bat. Um, but I, I had this vision of treatment where somewhere between the jail and hospital, and I'd gone on with my last hot credit card and charged these purple pajamas and a matching Christian Dior robe and some little slippers. Because... Because I knew that in the hospital you spend a lot of time in the bed, and uh, and I had this idea that they were just you were going to lay up in the bed, and they were going to come in and treat you a little bit every you know I mean just 
treats you a little in the morning and then treats you a little in the afternoon. I didn't really understand why it was going to take 30 days, you know, but um, but I had time in my schedule for it, so uh, so away we went. Um, I uh, I discovered Alcoholics Anonymous in that treatment center. I did not go to that treatment center to stop drinking. I went to that treatment center because I was in trouble and I had felony charges stacking up and I was starting to incur charges while I had uh, pending charges and, you know, it started getting sloppy and at one point they were even talking about sending Mr. and Mrs. Parker's boy to the penitentiary and, and I was like, wait, don't you know, you know, I mean, uh, but it started getting really ugly and I got into AA, and uh, this is where I talk about, you know, that I like to talk about what happened, then what I was like, then, I mean, then what happened, and then what happened, because I kind of came into AA. I came into AA, and a lot of people in this room have come into AA during a period when there was an abundance of discussion meetings. I went almost strictly to discussion meetings, and... Uh, and we would kind of talk about AA, and uh, you'd hear a lot of things that after a while, if you hear them a couple of times in AA, you think, well, they must be AA, you know? I mean, I heard it in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting a couple of times, but uh, so I was just kind of piecing together AA from, from what I was hearing in the meetings, and, and then, we, you know, we had some, I had some big book experience, but I missed a big piece of the program. I missed a lot of it. And um, the biggest piece I missed of it was the selfishness piece. Not a small piece, but, but I missed it for a long time. And, and I don't think I'm the only one that it ever happened to, so that's why I like to talk about it sometimes. Because what happened for me was I came in and they said, do you, do you, are you powerless over alcohol? And I said, yes. And they said, do you believe that a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity? And we got past that one. And then they said, let's get down on our knees and do the third step prayer. We completely missed that piece of work in pages 60, 61, 62, and 63. Not really important pages unless you're interested in the root of our problem. You know, the, the nature of our disease, you know, and what's going to kill me and what made me need a drink so bad by the time I was 16 years old. It sounds crazy, but then I kind of, I kind of just went along, and I, I now this is an oversimplification. There was more stuff going on than just this, but I'll, to, to say that I was still living a life based on self is a little bit of an understatement. Katie can testify. Um, I should say Katie and I were litter mates in this program. Katie, you know, and I'm going to mention it while I'm thinking about it, honey. This coming Tuesday, Katie will celebrate 24 years of sobriety. Uh, uh, and a half stinking months she's got on me um, you know I've kept her sober a few times by telling her if she drank again I'd sponsor her when she comes back but, uh, um, but she, we sobered up together we were litter mates and uh, I'll try to get basically she was married the whole 20 years that we were best friends. I mean, and to say that we were best friends, I mean, like brother and sister. There was never any kind of innuendo or flirtation. Or she wouldn't stand for it. And, um, uh, you know, uh, she was married the entire time. And then her husband passed away about five years ago. And then um, 
I have been through a series of marriages, and, and uh, um, <laughs> not one that she ever approved of. And and, uh, um, and then we've been a couple for I don't know almost five years, and then we got engaged to be married in uh, June. So uh, it's been a big year for us. Uh, um, I'm going to get back to some of that. I'm going to try really hard, honey. I, uh, uh, but I went through this period of AA, and I, uh, I don't know how to describe it, really. I was going to a lot of meetings. I was going, hanging out with AA guys. I had AA roommates. I, had, I worked with AA co-workers. I dated AA women. I went to AA barbecues. I went to AA dances. It was a whole lot of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And don't get me wrong, I love the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I really do. I love the meetings. I, but it's been my experience that it doesn't treat alcoholism. Um, am I saying don't go to AA meetings? Absolutely not. But for, if you've got it the way I've got it, for a chronic alcoholic, just going to AA meetings will not get the job done. For me, you know, it'll, it'll keep me sober right up until I go absolutely nuts. And... Um, I've had some experience with that in sobriety. But what happened for me was at about, I've had two or three bottoms in sobriety. One was at four and a half years. One was at seven years. And then I had my biggest spiritual awakening uh, when I'd been sober for 17 years. But there was so much self-will going on during some of those earlier periods, and I didn't even know it. And, you know, and what happens for a guy... I, I like to talk about this because I really feel like in the rooms there's plenty of message of the hope of recovery for the new man in AA. I think we hear plenty of that. But I like to talk sometimes to the people that have been in the room for three years, five years, 12 years, 15 years, and you're not feeling like you're experiencing what you hear some people talk about. And I'm here to tell you that it's still available. And it's available as the result of the work out of the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous with somebody who's done the work out of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got to that the hard way, though, because what happened with me was I had this about a, I had a flat period in my sobriety where I kind of, well, I can tell you exactly what happened. I was running on self-will. I kept running, and to say that I was a little self-centered, um, you know, when you start working with self-centeredness, the first place it becomes obvious is in other people, you know, and, but I mean, I'm blind to it in myself, that's why I have a sponsor, but oh my God, I, t I told a story about Katie's son one time, uh, about this, you know, uh, just an extreme example of self-centeredness, and she said, uh, that didn't in any way remind you of the red pickup truck story? I said, no, no, it didn't. Uh, I prefer not to tell the red pickup truck story. And, you know, it's where Katie's husband was going in to have surgery for brain, a brain tumor the next morning, and I had gotten a new pickup truck that day, and I insisted that Katie come down from the hospital room to look at my new pickup truck when her husband is preparing to go into surgery. That's the level of self-centeredness that I was carrying around in sobriety. Uh, that is not something I'm proud of, but that was the amount of self-centeredness that I was carrying. You know, my default setting, my default reaction is based in self every time, and it's better than it's ever been. But my God, um, did I create some wreckage in, in recovery um, doing that? Well, at about seven years, I hit the wall again. I was busted up another marriage. 
And I felt like I'd been going to your stupid meetings. I'm making the coffee. I'm doing this stuff, you know, and I'm and I'm getting knocked to the mat every time I step into the ring. And, you know, because I, I'm back-to-back failed marriages. And uh, looking back on it, and this is very much a looking back program, it's, uh, is that any clarity that I talked to you about tonight has come from looking back. I had no awareness on any of this when it was happening. But what happened was, when I think, when I look back on it, was I hit the wall with self-will. But I didn't recognize it as the failure of self-will. I looked at it as the failure of AA. You know what? I've tried it your way, and I'm sick of it. I'm getting knocked to the mat every time I step into the ring. I'm going to get some stuff going my way. And what happened was I hit the wall with self-will, and instead of turning to the power and turning to God and seeing it as the failure of self-will, I turned more into self-will. Does that make sense? So, so now I'm, I'm operating completely on self-will. And what happens is we start leaking in little bits of dishonesty. We start having some little justified resentments. Anybody ever had any of those? You know, I mean, the ones where, you know, and, and, and what starts happening is uh, when I get in crisis, I didn't know it, but what was happening was God's will had started dropping down like this, and self-will climbs up like that. All of a sudden, God consciousness is completely off the table, not factoring into my decisions or the way I live my life in any way. I'm running completely on self-will, and I don't even know it. And what happened then, you know, was uh, I rode that progress, not perfection train for a long time. You know, I mean, you know, and if, if I'm not, you know, because if I'm not careful... I can be the guy that's saying, you know, I left the house, I screamed at my wife this morning, I slapped one of the kids on the way out, you know, out the door, I kicked the dog, um, I goofed off at work, uh, left work two hours early, looked at two hours of internet porn, gambled for an hour and a half on the way home, but that's okay because I didn't drink today and that makes me a winner. You know, and, and you're like, no, that kind of makes you a jerk, you know. Uh, you know but... But that's the way, you know, because I, had, I was living a program based on abstinence from alcohol. I didn't understand the root of the problem as selfishness and self-centeredness. I didn't know that self-will was what killed me. So I thought as long as I didn't drink, I got an A. Well, I was in a... How are we doing for time? I was in a plane crash in 2003. I was in a marriage where we com- I commuted between Austin and New York City. For uh, It was about a 12-year relationship, and we had... We had, you know, it looked real good from the outside. We had a penthouse apartment in Manhattan. We had a beach house in the Hamptons. Um, a lot of stuff going on. And one time we chartered a plane to fly us from the Hamptons back into the city to go to dinner that night. And, I mean, I'd known people that had been flying back and forth to the Hamptons for 20 years. And this was the first time I ever chartered a plane. And uh, we get out over the Peconic Bay, and, and I'm in the co-pilot seat. It's a little six-seater. Um... And uh, they came on and they said, uh, well, it, it felt like somebody turned the key off. You know, we're going along and just, and all of a sudden we're in a glider. And uh, I, this is my only uh, airplane story, guys. So I, I'm the only non-fighter pilot that's speaking this weekend. So uh, <laughs> this, is my, this is my best shot. But... Uh, I got to tell you, when I told my sponsor that I was speaking with Scott and Linda Lee and Sandy Beach, he goes, 
that's kind of like playing with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, you know? I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm glad I get to go first. Um, we hit, they said, I put on the headphones and I hear them say, you're cleared to Gabreski. And there's an, air, there's an airport at 10 o'clock. And, but we're clearly not going to make it. He says, you don't understand. Uh, I've lost engine power. I can't make land. I'm going to have to ditch. And I remember thinking, what? You know, the first time, the, you know, I mean, I'm a gambler. What, that, those are astronomical odds, you know. I mean, the, the, and so it, we set it down in the drink. It was nighttime. We hit the water. Good landing. Uh, right about the time you go, my God, I think. You know, we just crashed an airplane. We're okay. And then all of a sudden, blip, 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 blip. I mean, it wasn't much of an airplane, but it was a terrible boat. And, uh, and all of a sudden, it's me. I go up to get some air, and there's nothing but water and the roof of the plane. And um, the doors wouldn't open. And I remember thinking, I had a very spiritual thought. I remember thinking, um, so that's it. I die in this blanking airplane. You know, I mean, that was that was the extent of my spirituality at that point. You know, but the doors came open. All five of us got out. My dog drowned, but all the all the people got out. Um, I'll take that deal. You know, I mean, we, I know where to get another dog. You know, uh, all the all the people got out, but not by much. It was really close. And if we hadn't have been in shallow water, just me and the pilot would have gotten out because uh, I can go back down to get the other people. And anyway, long story short. I didn't understand it at the time, but it was the beginning of a spiritual awakening for me. Because I started looking at things differently after that. And I remember coming back to Austin, I had developed some dishonesty in my life, you know. I, I was in that place where I was like, God, you can have everything, you know. Uh, well, except for that those that deal with the insurance at work and uh and then this little bit of dishonesty over here but I, I, you can have everything else you know and, and after a while i don't want to be a phony in this program after a while i just i just stopped praying you know i just kept going to meetings but and i, I stopped, but here i was and i knew this wasn't right well when this happened i remember going to my sponsor at the time and saying I am so self-centered that I can't even be involved in a, in, a relate, in a conversation. I have to force myself to say, how are the kids, you know, and then act like I give a flip about the answer, you know what I mean? Because it's just me, 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 me. And uh, he took me back out to the, he says, come meet me tomorrow. We're going to go out to the ranch. It's Austin Recovery. It's a little men's treatment center there in Austin. And he said, we'll go out and talk to the winos. And, uh, I remember thinking, that does not sound like a good idea. You know, I mean, they're going to want to talk about themselves. Uh, you know, you, you know how the new guys are, you know what I mean? They never ask how I'm doing, you know. And, and uh, but it was the beginning of a spiritual awakening for me that I didn't even know was coming. You know, I started going out there. And I was 17 years sober. And there were times where I felt like I was a step ahead of these guys sometimes. There were times when I would say, tell you what, why don't you go home and read the doctor's opinion? And I'd go home and read the doctor's opinion. I 
I didn't know how to put a guy through the work. It had been a while since I'd gone through the work with somebody. I knew how to be your life coach. I knew how to tell you, you know, which is a bunch of crap. But, I, you know, I, I, it, if a new guy came to me and said, well, can you put me through the steps, I would have been awkward about it. I was awkward about it. And I had to start studying the work myself. And that's why I wound up going to some guys in Dallas. I started getting hooked up with some of these guys in Dallas that are big book thumpers. And, uh, um I remember going to him and saying, look, I'm not trying, I want to go through the work for me. I'm not, I'm not going through the work to become a better sponsor. I didn't know that that's the part of the deal is that, you know, when we're sponsoring guys, we're just trying to build more sponsors out there. But I went through the work for me and I just, I'll never forget some of the stuff I started seeing in there. The, the, the pieces, Katie is uh, very generous with her opinion, I should say. And, uh, uh, I've been, I've been, I've been, had the benefit of a lot of input from her, and, and uh, I started seeing stuff in the book, like in step three, where it says, the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self can hardly be a success. I'm like, what? I, uh, not only was I not convinced of that statement, it never touched me. I never had, it never, I mean, just right over my head. And then I, as I started studying the book and I, you know, going through it with a big book sponsor and some of these big book guys that I was hanging out with, and um, I, I remember telling Katie one time, I said, my God, Katie's self is all over this book, you know? I mean, and she goes, she goes, you really never saw that? And I said, no. And she goes, that's some pretty basic stuff, Charlie. And I was like, I missed it, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, when you're living a life that is based on abstinence, a program that's based on abstinence from alcohol, there are some shocking lines in the book. You know, there's one on page 19 that blew my mind. Listen to this. We feel that elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. A much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. I remember reading that one time and going, how can it be my much more important demonstration of our principles than not drinking? You know, I'm, uh, I started working this program at a whole nother level. And, you know, it's funny because I'm going to try to draw this to a close, but there was a level of AA that I didn't even know was there. I had been sitting in those meetings and... It reminded me, I went to the cowboy game the other day. I got invited to sit up in the skybox. And I didn't know whether to be excited about sitting in the skybox or be pissed off about sitting in the cheap seats for 20 years. But there's a level of game watching going on that I didn't even know was happening. You know, I mean, these guys are up there with waiters and, you know, it was pretty cool. But uh, the thing about it was, the reason I say that is because if you had come to me when I had 17 years of sobriety and said, Charlie... What's going to change your life and what is going to set you on fire is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous right out of this big book. I would have thought you were full of bull because I would have said, you know, I've been in AA for 17 years. I know what this program offers me. Um, But I didn't have a clue. I I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but I'm I'm telling you that to say that my life has never been better is kind of like saying it's better sober than it was drunk. I mean, there is, I'm experiencing a level of AA that I never knew was out there. And if I had died in that plane crash on July 20th of 2003, I would have missed it all. I was sitting there 
living in untreated alcoholism. And, you know, I, my experience has been that anything that I use to try to treat the spiritual malady in sobriety causes the need for another 12-step program. You know, I mean, it's, it's like that's why they got Gabblers Anonymous and Overeaters Anonymous. I'm obviously kicking ass at that one, but... Um, <laughs> But I, I'm down to one, you know. I mean, <laughs> you have no idea how much growth that is. Uh, you know, because, um, but I, I guess I started doing this deal. I started studying the work. I started sponsoring guys. We started getting into service work. Katie and I went up to a meeting in Dallas, and it was the first time I'd ever been to a meeting where I thought, my God, we need a meeting like this in, in Austin. And we started this primary purpose group in Austin, and we started off with 30 people, and, and you know, then we had 60 people, and then we had 100 people. Now we got 150, 175 people ganging up on Tuesday night to study the big book, line by line. It took us 17 months to go through the first 164 pages of the big book and Dr. Bob's nightmare. Um, I see new stuff in there all the time, and I see the ripple effect of people getting in there, getting clarity out on the message, the way it's laid out in the book, and getting out and carrying that message to the new guy out there. That's what our primary purpose was. But, I, you know, I wasn't doing it. I was a selfish, self-centered prick. And I, was, I had come in there, gotten enough out of it to get me going, and then it's back to living this good life. And I, I let the good things of Alcoholics Anonymous, I mean, the things that Alcoholics Anonymous gave me, pull me away from the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Katie and I are up to our ears in service work, and I have never been happier. I mean, the conversations that we have around the house about the principles of this program and the way this book... Um, it's it's the real joy of my life. I mean, you know, and it's so funny because there was a time when if, you know, before that spiritual awakening, there was a time when if I had a problem and you came at me with that stuff, I would have been like, don't give me that AA crap right now. I've got a real problem to deal with here, you know. And, and now it's all about God and it's all about, you know, God consciousness and actually working all 12 steps. It's, it's awesome. you got to try it. Um, you know, because I, I got this sponsor that the first time I got with him, he goes, uh, he, he's, he's rude. He's just rude. He's, you know, he says stuff like, if you're not praying and meditating on a regular basis, you're not working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Is that rude? I mean, you know, just just like that, you know, and uh, we're actually doing morning meditation, evening review, um, you know, 10th step, spot check inventories, going through the stuff, doing all 12 steps, getting out there, working these principles in all our lives. And it's not perfect. I mean, it's not perfect at all. I got I to gotta tell you one little story. I'm in the Sprint store about four years ago. Has Sprint been on anybody else's inventory? You know, I mean, you know. I find myself, I had, I had spoken at this treatment center the day before. And... Uh, and uh, I'm in the Sprint store, and I'm rolled up on the counter, up on my knuckles like a gorilla. And uh, and I'm hollering at this guy about, you know, him not meeting my needs. And, and I'm like, I think I said, I used the word Nimrod at one point. And, uh, and uh, he goes off, you know, because King Charles is not getting his way in the Sprint store. And he, he goes off to the back, and I look over, and this guy is kind of grinning at me. And uh, I go, man. They're getting me a little worked up in here. And he goes, did you see me get my 90-day chip last night? <laughs> I was just like, brother, what you just saw 
we're not the principals of this program. You know, I, uh, uh, God's got a great sense of humor. You know, I mean, there's a million stories like that. But I got to tell you, sponsoring these people, the stuff that's been going on in my life, it has been absolute magic. Uh, the thing I can tell you, if you're a self-centered, chronic alcoholic like me, service work never sounds like a good idea. But it is the magic of this program. I... Uh, the guys, I'm sponsoring about 14 guys right now, and Katie sponsors about 30, about 20. But God almighty, the world's women talk. Uh, um, I mean, nothing against but women just have to process a little more than, than guys. I mean, she's on the phone all the time, and I'm like, just say you're sorry, you selfish prick, and call me tomorrow, you know. And, um, you know, but... but, <laughs> but she's got to talk them all the way through everything, but... But I mean, our house, we have, you know, she has a meeting there on Thursday night. She had 35 women there because she had been pressing women into sponsoring people. A lot of them said they felt uncomfortable sponsoring people. She started doing a step workshop. She had 35 women in our house Monday night, putting them through the steps. She has a regular meeting on Monday nights. We have a meeting called The Common Solution on Thursday nights. It's me and my sponsor and all my sponsees, and we get together and make sure that we're all carrying the same message right out of the book. And I'm telling you, the stuff that happens, I got a sponsee in North Carolina today that flew back to have some uh, charges dropped. That I have, it cannot happen. What happened to this guy today? It can't happen unless God's involved. I mean, you watch this stuff happen over and over again. When God gets involved, stuff starts happening. And, you know, and I tell these guys over and over, it is unbelievable. I had one sponsee that I met. I'm, i got to tell the story about Jamie, and then I'll get down. I, uh, I'm out at the ranch one day, this treatment center, and I see this guy coming towards me. And I remember thinking, oh, please, God, don't ask me to sponsor you. You know, I mean... <laughs> He's got dreadlocks out to here. He's got ink all over him. He's got a ring in his nose. He's got, you know, and uh, sure as heck, you know, he comes up and, hey, what's up? Uh, you know, and, um, um, and I love this guy. I mean, this guy is beautiful. He has turned into one of my best soldiers. And, and, you know, I mean, you talk about a guy that is carrying the message of this program. And here a couple of months ago, he flew up to, uh, he was in the amends part of his program and working 10 and 11 real hard. And he flew up to New Jersey to turn himself in on some criminal charges that have been pending since 1991. And to watch this guy go from the hopeless, drug-addicted, chronic alcoholic that he was when I met him to being standing before a judge and telling me before, on his way up there that the only way I'll go to jail is if there's somebody in that jail... that I'm the only one they can hear the message from. That's not the power of Jamie. That's not the power of Charlie Parker. That's the power of God working in a man's life. I almost missed it. I almost missed it. If you're sitting in these rooms and you're not feeling it like you hear people talking about it, get back into the work. 
get with somebody. I'm so sick of losing people with time. Everywhere I go, it always starts off with, I had eight years, I had 12 years, I had 16 years, and then, you know, I went to the dentist, I went to the doctor. You take that guy that's living on self-will like I was, and, I, and, and that spiritual malady is turning in there, and, and I don't even know it, and you give that guy a couple of Vicodin, and it triggers that physical allergy, and all of a sudden he's going, what happened? You know, two weeks ago I had 15 years of sobriety. I'm so sick of seeing people driven away from this program by untreated alcoholism that's who I like to talk to if, if you get with somebody and tell them you need to get back into the work it's still available out there and it's just as hot as it's ever been there's that little girl in the pink dress I'm going to read something from page 100 of our big book new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress if you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things that came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. I thank God for showing me to you guys, and I thank you guys for showing me to God. Thanks for having me.